Hello and welcome to the very first episode of How AI Built This, hosted by me, Lou Wilson. This podcast will delve into the life and careers of some of the most influential people in data across the UK, telling their story like you've never heard before. But first, why am I doing this and who the hell am I? I work for Cathcart Associates, uh, one of the UK's best independent technology recruitment companies. Um, and having organised ManCML for the last four years and ScottML for the last two years, I wanted to be able to tell the story of some of the people I've met along the way um, and shout about the amazing work being done in the UK when it comes to data and data analytics. Often this type of podcast will focus on billionaires, household names you might recognize anywhere in the world, tech unicorns. Nobody I know is doing this for tech SMEs and the type of company that we would typically work with. Anyway, that's enough about me. When I first decided on doing this, uh, around six months ago or so, uh, the only person I wanted to be on first was Richard Potter, the CEO of Peak. Luckily enough, he agreed. Uh, He's a great guy running an unbelievable SaaS business focused on AI and machine learning. I've been lucky enough to work with the team for the last five years or so, uh, and I've seen it grow from zero data scientists to a team of circa 20 that it is today, as well as the software engineering team, the customer success team, the sales team. They've really built something special uh, and something to shout about in Manchester and the rest of the UK. So we will chat through his life, career, how Peak started, um, a drunken decision to buy a domain, and the lessons he's learned along the way of growing what is uh, a really great company. So sit back and enjoy the first ever How AI Built This with Richard Potter. Today's the very first podcast of How AI Built This, and my first guest is Richard Potter, the CEO of Peak. So when I started this idea about six months ago of I'd like to get in on the podcast game, I thought, who could I, who could I have on? And uh, I think it made sense to have you on first as a bit of an introduction to kind of how we know each other. Um, we have done some recruitment for Peak, and they have been instrumental in a few of our events. And yeah, it was, I thought it would be a really good story to tell for a kind of successful startup in the northwest of England um, who've done some really great things. So before we get into it, I don't know if you want to do a very snappy intro on what, what Peak do. Yes. Well, thanks for having me. As you said, Peak is uh, the number one AI company in the northwest of England and maybe also uh, Global. the world. We are a company that helps businesses adopt um, AI um, into the heart of their operations. Uh, we have a firm belief that companies that can leverage their data using machine learning and AI can outcompete uh, and, uh, and grow, grow quicker, uh, make more money, be- become more sustainable um, using artificial intelligence. And that's what we're trying to help everybody do. And we do that using um, our AI system, which lands within their IT landscape um, and powers all the core um, AI and ML uh, applications and solutions that they might want to run within their business. So we work with some amazing companies such as Foot Asylum, Speedy Hire, Marshalls, Global, ASOS, uh, to name but a few. Um, so over the last few years, uh, we've had a great time helping some of the smartest companies in the UK. And uh, now we're setting our sights on global expansion. So, yeah. Nice. No, it's amazing. And it's uh, there were some pretty pretty big names in there already and um, before we dive into I suppose what peak is in 2019 after school you ended up in Edinburgh hmm. uh, to do uni um, what did you study there uh, business studies business studies at the mighty Edinburgh University nice fond memories of Edinburgh 
Yeah, yeah, well, definitely. Uh, well, I went to school in Fife. I wouldn't, that doesn't sound like I did. Did you know that? I don't think I knew that. Yeah, yeah. No. So I grew up in the Midlands, but then I moved to Scotland. My mum's from Glenrothes. Ah, I, see. I mean, you still commuted all the way from Fife, so yeah. Yeah, I made um, it out of Fife. <laughs> I didn't stay there long. Some people get stuck. Um, okay, great. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and um, although I did always want to go to university in Edinburgh regardless, um, it just so happened that I didn't do my A-levels in England. I moved up and did my hires in Scotland, and that uh, yeah sent me about going to Edinburgh Uni. Wow, um, nice. I chose Edinburgh because um, it was either going to be Edinburgh or Glasgow. I like cities, so I wanted to live in a city. And uh, Did you choose Edinburgh so you could tell everyone for the rest of your life that you went to a red brick uni? Because <laughs> all of my friends that went to Edinburgh Uni, that's all they ever say. Well, the thing is, um, you know, seeing as this is a friendly podcast, I can admit that um, the grades required to get into Edinburgh University Business School were actually lower. Than oh, good. To get into uh, the non-red brick unis in, uh, in Scotland, and I figured no one will know this when I'm uh, 30 odd years old, so I'll just go to the red brick uni and uh, do the easier course. I'm so glad you, so said, think, so glad you said that. So you've got something to throw back at your mates now. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> so you study business, which I think is quite a kind of classic group for a lot of what you would now call kind of entrepreneurs and I think it makes sense because obviously business degrees are quite varied yeah it does except um, I do think that they're possibly more useful once you've got some real world experience so <laughs> I, I, th- I, th- I do think I look back at that and think some of the most interesting things I did were the outside courses in you know East Asian history and uh, ancient China and uh, all these sort of things as well as like some of the economics uh, courses and so on yeah okay um, factual things as well that can set you uh, off with like a strong foundational knowledge of how a business operates like all the accountancy stuff is really boring when you're yeah. at uni but now is really handy to understand how like double entry bookkeeping runs but then like if you if you think about some of the other things that you would do in a business degree like you know case studies of x company or y company written up by an academic and then regurgitated and learned by you and then commented on yeah. it's kind of like tricky to have a strong opinion or a real deep seed knowledge of how or why that thing might have been the case without some real world experience. So I do think that MBAs, um, once you've got some uh, work experience under your belt, are probably more valuable than business degrees, to be honest. But that's just, yeah, but but there's nothing wrong with starting there. But yeah. I do think that you do need some real world experience um, to, re- to really make use of the, the things you learn. And actually, some of the things that we learn at uni, I've started to use now in my role, because finally, you know, I can start to analyze a business from the top and yeah, think okay. about what we need to do whereas until you're in that position um, maybe not so but it was a great course and a good institution so I can't complain about that no, that's interesting I really thought about it that way because I did a very similar degree at yeah. a non-red brick uni in, in Edinburgh but yeah loads of the stuff we learned oh Harriet Watt yeah, yeah I'll, get, I'll plug Harriet Watt in Edinburgh. It's, pretty, it's actually <laughs> close to where I live which I also get a lot of shit for yeah, no, it's really interesting. And the only takeaways I took from, well, not only, but some of the main ones were looking at companies like Innocent Drinks back then, who mm. were a bit of a kind of outlier. Yeah. Um, and they were doing things differently. Um, that's one of the only real case studies I remember. And we did loads. Um, so, no, it's interesting. I think you're right. Having some real business experience would make it more interesting. And I wish I'd paid more attention to stuff like accountancy and the kind of more boring topics, like you said. Um, so, yeah, no, you finished uni. Did you always intend on staying in Edinburgh? Uh, actually, I kind of wanted to go a bit further afield. I, I, I wanted to move to London after university, um, but I, I stayed in Edinburgh for a variety of reasons, um, sort of family and friends, um, as well as like landing a, a really good opportunity for a first sort of graduate job with 
with Wolfson, Wolfson Microelectronics at the time, who are now who are now part of Cirrus Logic, yeah. a Texan um, semiconductor company. Um, but when Wolfson was independent, uh, then you know that that was a really exciting time actually to to work in that industry. So you know, combination of things kept me in Edinburgh for a little while longer. Um, yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. Did you work in that crazy office just off the Western Approach? Yeah, the one by Murrayfield. Yeah, it doesn't make yeah. any sense. One of like the coolest tech companies Scotland's ever produced, and they were in this little location in Murrayfield that it still lies empty to this day since, since, since they moved out. Yeah, because they're up uh, by the meadows now. Um, oh yeah, their new place is incredible. Um, so, did you start there in a technical role, or was it a kind of business focused role? Yeah, it was interesting. I, so they had uh, back then they had three business units that focused, if, I, if my mind serves me correctly, on say uh, you know they had a consumer business unit and more. Uh, imaging focused business unit um, and so on so they chopped the business into three and they were looking for three business analysts as they called it although yeah, okay. they weren't really business analysts they were they were they wanted sort of marketing and um, almost like uh, you would probably describe it as a data analyst role now yeah, okay. if, if, if it existed back then as a, as, a, as a thing and they only found one in me which was great for me because uh, <laughs> it was a bit of a daunting task but coming into a company and, and what they wanted really was support you know we've got we don't necessarily know everything they, they knew what was going on but they had you know data and uh, opportunity to know more yeah. so um, this probably is, is part of how my careers ended up going the way it's gone so the, the, the role was a really really interesting one it was within the marketing function supporting marketing and sales um, but there was no data available we had an ERP system we didn't have any business intelligence systems yeah um, the company had just floated on the London Stock Exchange and like got some really exciting design wins into iPods, Xboxes, DVD players were taking off at the time. So as a, a mixed signal semiconductor company, they were going places really, really quick. So it was mega exciting. Founders still ran it and, uh, and owned cool. a large part of it and it was a really great culture. So sort of learned a load in those first few years in that role and having to, um, looking back, I, I'm really, thought about it like this before but but essentially help build the information systems that then gave us the data and the info that we could then do things with you know we, we when I joined we couldn't work out average sales price we couldn't attribute sales to certain markets customers um, and products and so on so we had to build all of that up which is quite a hard thing to do um, and once we'd done that we had um, a lot of information to support investment decisions pricing decisions roadmap decisions um, which was really 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 interesting so that's how yeah. that's how my career started actually and then we'll briefly touch on kind of where else you've kind of went to get here um but you then kind of moved on to do something by on on the face of it quite different at ubs investment bank as a kind of equity analyst so i think people will have a perception of what that means but what did it actually mean in practice yeah well um <laughs> so i was at wolfson i think about four and a half maybe five years um four four and a half years maybe yeah um in that role i moved from that analyst role into um into product line management and more sort of product marketing type type roles and i ended up um we we split the product lines into end applications because we had the had the ability to do that then and i was looking after the mobile phone product line at the time okay um and at the time we were doing that we did get 
design wins into the first iPhone, um, some of the original Samsung Galaxies, yeah. although they weren't called that back then, and and so on. So it was quite a, it was a new it, the new sort of smartphone era was just taking off. Um, but I was sort of getting a bit of itchy feet, not from Wolfson itself, because it's still a company that I hold quite dearly. Um, but more so, just wanted to get out of Edinburgh yeah. uh, in, a, in, in the nicest possible way. You know, been there a long time. I wanted to sort of see more of the world, and, and I also wanted to get a job that I thought would be like in my head was going to be really, really hard, so that it would <laughs> like stretch me. So I'd met a few. Equity, an, equity analysts who like covered Wolfson as like you know research as, as research analysts, yeah. Um, because we were a PLC, um, and always thought it was really, and, and that was mainly because you know I, I sort of had a lot of the data myself, and that's how I used it. So so sometimes I got asked to answer questions for them, um, and and it kind of attracted me there. So I thought, okay, that that looks like a hard job, being a essentially a stockbroker and researching like researching equities. Yeah, sounds tricky. Um, and I know the semiconductor supply chain a little bit. Not that I'm an engineer, but you know, um, maybe I can take that knowledge and learn finance. And um, and and, and, it, and, it, and it, yeah, and I managed to get a job at UBS um, at a time that was quite interesting because that was two. So that was 2008, and yeah. about a few months after I joined, the the crash happened. You know, Lehman Brothers went bust. Um, UBS was having credit calls. People didn't even know in the UBS office if we were going to have a job the next day. So it was like quite, some quite exciting stuff going on. Was that um, in London as well? Yeah, that was in London. And, and so, uh, so that that's kind of how that happened. Um, but I, I, yeah, I was, I was interested to sort of transplant knowledge that I'd got in industry into finance um, and do something that pushed me. But then, um, then I suppose one of the things that it enabled me to do, and I didn't consciously decide this. Um, to try and do this but one of the byproducts of it was that you then got to look at loads of different companies yeah. and in only having worked at Wolfson previously I knew Wolfson but I didn't know the wider world so yeah, I did okay. actually open my mind up to and I learned loads I really enjoyed that um, and I and also learned the hard way that you know stocks can go down as well as up and you can lose money when you're investing and all that kind of stuff so um, good like foundational training I think um, probably the best the and worst time to join right yeah like if you if you all you care about is earning money probably the worst time <laughs> to be an investment banker but the but if you want to learn it's probably probably the best um, and uh, yeah so I, I really enjoyed it and then after the kind of the crash uh, you ended up back at Wolfson as you said the company you have a, a lot of affinity for yeah. um, did you stay in London to do that? No well so actually um, I wasn't really planning a move back into industry but I, I was sort of growing after after sort of 18 months two years just thinking mm, like I do really like this and I like analysing lots of different companies but what it made me realise was as talking to management teams as an analyst you do that um, that I had a stronger desire to go and help those management teams and work within companies than yeah, sort of okay. comment on them uh, yeah. from outside of them. I think it, it you know, and, and that's just um, that's just a personal preference. Um, and uh, my old boss um, from my first stint at Wolfson gave me a ring and said, um, "We've got this job going. Um, are you interested?" So, so I said, "Yeah, I will do it as long as I can do it, uh, you know, remotely and commute between Edinburgh and." Uh, and home, so so I did. So I did do that. I moved back and then had a second stint at Wolfson, which uh, which again was equally rewarding. But the company the company was in a very different place by this point. Um, 
had had, a, had undergone a couple of changes in management team, and uh, end markets had matured and changed somewhat. Yeah. So uh, it, was, it was a different set of challenges, um, but a very interesting set of challenges. Um, so yeah, I had a few more years um, back at Wolfson before before finally landing in a software business um, afterwards. Yeah, I was going to say. So we'll, we'll move on to the last role before uh, before peak. So um, Cooper Software as uh, commercial director. So I think, like you said, using your kind of ability to analyse and uh, and help management, that role seems to make quite a lot of sense. Yeah, well, so as, as we had it, um, Coop Software is a, um, another Scottish technology company, yeah. if you know them, yeah, uh, yeah. and Frank, who, whose business it is, um, a friend of mine, and, uh, and set it up from scratch. And I think we'd always, we'd actually worked together at Wolfson way back in the day before oh, he nice. set up his own business. And, uh, and so we'd always sort of thought we could work together at some point. Um, <clears throat> and this opportunity came along, he was looking for somebody to help him uh, run sales and marketing. And the main reason for me uh, moving on from Wolfson to do that was a couple of reasons, really. I wanted to I wanted to work in another tech sector. Yeah. Um, so you know, software, software over semiconductors and hardware. Yeah. Um, because it's slightly different, slightly different dynamic in the end market, and and I, I just wanted to learn learn a, a new area. Um, but also, I wanted to take responsibility for the actual sale. Um, so at Wolfson, the way the structures worked was, you know, if you worked at HQ and you worked within the product lines or the business units, um, you would then work with the regional sales teams to help sell the product. And I, and the more I did that, the more I realised I liked being in those customer meetings and I liked the idea of selling. Yeah, okay. um, and so um, this opportunity gave me the ability to um, start a sales and marketing team from scratch and grow it, which was quite a big responsibility and a, and a new thing for me to do. I felt like I could give it a go, um, and and obviously in a bigger company like like Wolfson and the way it was structured with sort of global customers, I wouldn't have got that that chance at all. So um, so this this gave me the opportunity to do that, um, and yeah, well, and, and we had a great time growing growing now Cooper Software together. Frankly. Yeah, no, I bet. Um, is that in my memory serving me right from the very first time we ever met? Was that the company that you did the like Manchester to Edinburgh commute? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, that's hard. It was a hard old commute. That um, I used to drive, and then I realised you can't do any work when you're driving. No. So I got the train, and then like Transpennine Express. You can't do a lot of work on the train either. Um, so you you kind of a little bit uh, knackered either way. But um, yeah, that was a t- it was a tiring old commute. But I, I, you know, actually back then, um, well, towards the end, I did have, like my my son, my first son was born while yeah. we were doing while, while I was doing that role. Um, which was one of the reasons for for wanting to set up, you know, set up and do something closer to home, actually. Um, but you know, um, yeah, it was it was tough, but it was great because we 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 grew the business really well um, together in those couple of years I was there, and, and since I've left, they've carried on on uh, on a very successful path, um, continuing to grow the company. So you know, um, yeah, yeah, really happy about that for them. So now we've got to the part why probably why everyone's listening. Peaks born yeah. uh, in December 2014, which is about right. About right, yeah. We we registered the company in November. Nice. Um, and we actually started trading in December. Yeah, so that is almost exactly spot. So we'll kind of go through what's happened since then. Mm. But what was the inspiration behind it? Obviously, you've got David and Atul as founders. Yeah. How did that come about? 
Well, so yeah, I mean, uh, we, let's go. Let's go for it. Let's tell the story. Um, yeah, three of us founded the business. Yeah. Um, Dave and I knew each other from school, uh, and we had been in uh, Edinburgh together at uni as well, just by just by chance. Um, and uh, I, I th- the idea really came from. I was sort of fascinated by some of the stuff we did at Cooper Software. So I'd seen the impact that good data can make on decision making at Wolfson. Like yeah. particularly the first time I was there, going from a uh, sort of environment where we didn't have any management information, and then we grew. You know, or we had what you would call like the right amount of management information for the time. But as we grew, we needed more, and we had to put systems in place. And then the difference that could make on decision making. Um, and the ability of an organisation to move quickly and, and do the right thing. So I'd seen that firsthand, and then when we then you know with Cooper Software, we we did a lot of that business intelligence um, stuff for you know we set up designed and set up business intelligence systems for loads of companies, um, and and I, I just found that area fascinating. Um, and I think the problem we were trying to we isolated in on when it came to peak. Um, was, you know, almost like some sort of paradox that, you know, even to this day, I don't really fully understand, I would say. They're like, it's so obvious that companies that can harness data correctly perform better than those who don't. Um, So why doesn't everybody do it? And so if you you really really get into why, the, the thing that we started to try and solve for was the technology problem. There's almost like a, I think, I think back then when, business intelligence was sort of new-ish and um, not as old hat as it is now, um, your choice as a company looking for a supplier was pretty limited. You know, you, you either had to work with the big systems integrators, spend a lot of money on transformation projects, and, and that's not attractive to everyone. But equally, is working with a software reseller the right thing to do because you've got to pick the software? And I think what we were trying to, were trying to build was a company that was very business-oriented. So come to us and we will help your business perform better. We'll work out what you can do to perform better and then we'll build you that thing. And we'll try and be like technology agnostic. And that was the, that was the idea behind Peak. Um, very much a sort of performance thing. Your business can perform better if we can do this right. Um, what you need is a company with business skills and tech skills and data skills all in one. Yeah. Um, but actually we also had in the back of our mind that, um, that if we set that business up, we would never be able to scale that big if we remained a services only company or a yeah, consulting okay. firm so um, so so we were on the lookout from day one for a product that we could build or an area that we could focus on that could help us scale um, so I look at Peak actually as having two incarnations we've got this early incarnation here where um, I left my job set up this company and we started trading and over time you know we grew a, a, a small but really interesting customer base that included Morrison's, AstraZeneca and The Economist Um, and the learning we took from that helped us have a product idea and distill that knowledge and our beliefs into into a product Um, and the product at the time which is very similar to the product now is was it was first and foremost a data platform and we thought that if we could solve the data processing problem i.e. we could enable companies to harness data quicker by processing it all um, in almost like an unconstrained way, um, for want of a better way of saying it, we could free them of the constraints of their IT infrastructure and the way they did it at the time, which would shortcut the time to value for any data project, right? That was sort of, and, and, and our answer to that was, 
data platform in the cloud that doesn't do ETL. It just takes all your data, sucks it in, figures it out as you go, and gives you um, gives you insight um, quicker that way. So that that was our we had that idea, and then we thought if we if we build that platform, we could we could then move into data visualization and business intelligence, and then we could move into machine learning because the platform would allow us to do that. And so we went and pitched a few investors. We got some money. Um, and, in, and in June 2016, when our seed funding landed, that's almost the second incarnation. We then immediately stopped doing the um, consulting projects that had helped us formulate the ideas and bootstrap the business um, and took that seed funding and grew, grew out the team that is peak today. So that, that's sort of how we got, we got going. And there's been a load of lessons which we can chat about today, I'm sure. Like, as, as sort of how did we go from that idea to what peak is today? Um, and and I, yeah, and, and that sort of whirlwind journey of like three years from it was really the it was the three of us and one person three years ago, and um, and to where we are today has been pretty has been has been a good fun journey. Yeah, no, it's pretty epic. I think as British people, we're really bad at celebrating <laughs> like successes. And just as a, a recap of our first conversations, it was very much you guys were on the Northern Stars program in some questionable Game of Thrones outfits. Um, I don't know if you remember. So I thought it was a good idea when setting up our Manchester division to speak to early stage companies because, I don't know, it, just, uh, it made sense. Uh, yeah. So we spoke, and, and I looked at our uh, CRM uh, recently, and I think I phoned you every month for a year. Yep. Um, which sounds, I miss those phone calls. It sounds quite stalkerish. But uh, you were very nice, though. You said, phone me back in a month because this is going to be big. And I was like, all right, cool. Um, and in 2015, we met in, a, I can't remember the name of the building, but the... The co-working space. Yeah, yeah, central um, working. Yeah, central working. So it was me, my director, you, and too many people for the tiny room that had the peak logo on it. Yeah. Uh, people were spilling out of it, and it was only maybe four or five people. Yeah. But Lucy had been brought on board, and we kind of discussed hiring the first data scientist, which sounds crazy when you see what peak is now. Yeah. But it wasn't that long ago. And I think at the time as well, it was peak business insight, Yeah. which uh, everyone gets confused with business intelligence, which I assume yeah. was maybe part of the reason to drop it, but... Well, no, well, um, there's a longer story. Is it like I, the Facebook story? So just drop the BI. Well, I, actually, you know, it was peak BI because that was the original idea. Like yeah. you can harness, BI obviously works as business intelligence, but in our case, it was business insight. Yeah. If you can harness that, well, you can perform better. Um, but we, but after the, after getting that seed funding and launching like this sort of first very early version of peak that almost, you know, like peak system yeah. that it is now, um, we went and worked with a lo- as many companies as we could to see like what can we do um, that works with this product, um, and the and the things that we did that made the biggest impact that stuck that everyone was interested in was the machine learning and AI stuff. Yeah. Okay. So remember, I was saying like we we were thinking we'll solve the data problem, then we'll add on data visualization, and then we can add on machine learning. Um, that was our sort of strategy. Um, we realised that everyone just wanted machine learning. So you had to flip on his head. So we turned it around. Yeah, and and as as in turning it around and making it a sort of AI ML first play, you still have to solve the data problem. Yeah. But that's more in the background, and that's how um, I'd say that for the last three years we've been uh, we've been a an AI company, um, but we dropped the yeah we dropped the BI domain yeah. name after um, yeah after a drunken late night purchase. Uh, by me uh, in my house I seem to remember having one too many beers after work thinking we really need to change our domain name finding someone who was selling peak.ai and like 
spending three thousand pounds on this <laughs> changing our domain name by one letter that's amazing um, worth like it coming into work on monday going we're we're changing our domain name that's one way to do a rebrand and, and uh yeah an expensive one letter change but what like worth it i think not too right. It turns out it wasn't. Not all drunken decisions are bad ones. It turns out. <laughs> no, I have to agree. They're almost all good ones. Um, so yeah, we, well, we just went over kind of pivoting to to more of an AI first consultancy. So you get to be in a company that has some seed funding, has spent a fortune on a domain, has a solid leadership team. How do you decide who to hire first? And is there any lessons from growing that initial data team? to what it is now yes well so we've got wrapped up in this um, not just the AI side of it um, and um, and, us, uh, and I'll correct you on that one I would say AI product company but uh, or SaaS company as, as we yeah. are now yeah product's to, definitely the better you know, word I, I think we had what we had to do uh, uh, the biggest actually because because uh, I know you're going to ask us this what, 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 what were the biggest challenges yeah the biggest challenge was actually making that transition from we've got the product idea, we've got the seed funding, but we've got all these customers that we don't want to let down that we're doing services work for, and we but we want to be a SaaS business. Yeah, okay. Um, so making that transition was really hard because we felt you know we felt a sense of duty to our customers who got us to that position to to finish that. Of course, and, yeah. that, and that slowed us down for the first few months where when we just wanted to build product. Um, but we, I'd say that took us six months to go from like, you know, not taking on any more work to winding those projects down while we tried to grow a team and build a product um, and turn Peak into a SaaS business. Um, but we did, we did do that well. The other thing that we were trying to do though, in, to answer you that question, like we were trying to grow a business from scratch as well as growing an AI business from scratch. So some of our early hires and prioritizations came from wanting to grow the business, not just the tech side, right? So you mentioned Lucy, Lucy, who's been with us from the start as yeah. our um, head of people. Like our, our, that was like our first investment because we have this strong belief that we're gonna be successful because of our team and our culture. That's gonna trump everything because we'll be able to do whatever we want. We can pivot, we can uh, morph, we can, re, you know, we can, and we've got to where we've got to today because we've got an amazing culture and team. Um, so we prioritized that first and then getting solid foundation from a management team perspective and, and doing something that a lot of companies maybe wouldn't do, which is making sure that, you know, Atoll's our CTO, Dave ran, ran and runs operations um, and I'm more commercial. Um, but then bringing Lucy in from a people perspective and then Will in from a, uh, at the time a product now um, data science and customer success perspective, we had this really like, strong sort of top group of people that we could then build um, around yeah. um, or with, alongside. Um, whereas I think a lot of startups will go straight to um, like building the building the teams. Whereas I, w- I wanted to build the sort of the the network of like colleagues or peers that we were going to build this company together with. Like foundations to make everything stable. Yeah, because then I felt that we could that we could actually that would help us scale quicker. Turns out you were right. Uh, maybe, maybe I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, 
I, th I, th I think so because you're self-limiting. I think I think a lot of self tech startups are self-limiting because they um, they push everything through the founders. So we're lucky. We we got three founders, right? Yeah. Um, so we each kind of had a distinct area of the business. Now, if there was two of you, that would be also be okay. If you were a, if but if you were a solo founder, that'd be very very difficult. And if you're a solo founder who didn't then bring in people around them that could take things off them fully, um, that. You would, you would just naturally move much, much slower and yeah. life would be harder. So we've been able to move quicker because we had that team. And as soon as we got that, then we were into, right, we, you know, we need the right skill sets, both from a data science and an engineering perspective. Um, and that, yeah, and that, and that was fun. Yeah, I think the, the growth was pretty rapid from then on. It was kind of hiring every month, wasn't it? Yeah, I think, so we, so very quickly after that, um, Dom, Dom and Stu joined Peak. And I think you helped us with most of our early recruitment in data science, right? Yeah, this podcast um, isn't about me, but I think uh, Peak's <laughs> probably only existing right now because of Dominance too in the early days. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, you're right. We, no, we, helped, we helped at the start. But I think a key takeaway, and we're going to get to advice for other people, but I think without the structure that was set up before, I don't think you get the, the speed of hiring and decision-making, I think. Yeah. Because I think you're right. You had three founders and a couple of senior people yeah. Out with that, they can make decisions on hiring. Yeah, um, and I think everyone learns now that hiring is almost every company's number one priority. So, how what have you done to set that up for success? And whether intentionally or not, back in twenty fifteen, I think you guys already had that pretty nailed. Yeah, well, it, yeah, I think I nicked that idea off someone else because obviously I'd never grown a company before. But you know. The, a large part of running a business is, is recruitment. You know, got to particularly in the early days. You know, you don't have anything. You've got to sell to people that they should join your business, um, and that it will be their business, and we're going to grow this together. And that's the that's the spirit we adopt at Peak. Um, but we've always put loads of effort into that. I think the thing lessons for others would be, you know, you want to move really quickly, and so you have a temp and and everyone sees the best in everyone. So you've, you're way more biased to saying yes to somebody joining your business than no, yeah. naturally, because of that speed imperative, because you want to like everyone you meet and any little doubts you have in interviews you put to the back of your mind. <laughs> Whereas what we've learned is in having a few of us responsible for that, um, we move quite quick in hiring decisions, but we actually, but we're very thorough and make sure that we all have a say. And something I learned from UBS actually, back going all the way back, I met everybody at UBS before joining it. Peers, uh, managers, 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 um, absolutely everybody. And anyone could say no, no matter what grade they were, whether they were the, um, the team admin, whether they were a junior associate, or whether they were a managing director, any of them could say no. And we have the same thing here at Peak, because different people see different things in people. And, and so I think what that has meant for us is that our hiring decisions, we have got some wrong over the years. Um, and I think if you get them wrong, you're getting them wrong for you and that person, and that's not fair. You need to make a good decision that 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 that, that person is right, and they need to be able to make the decision that business is right. And if you get it right, then amazing things happen. And if you go back to those early days, um, all those all those first data scientists at, at Peak are still here, and they've grown with the business and helped us grow the business, and it's their business. That's the. I think you have to have that sort of rigor in recruitment. And that's quite unusual for me because I'm not that. No, I would normally make fast decisions off. Like buying a website after a few whiskeys. Exactly. <laughs> exactly like that. <laughs> I think you're right. No, I think hiring's a big thing. We could talk about this forever and we'll move on in a second. But I think 
what always stood out when we did do that kind of initial scaling was you got involved in every single part. The process was the same for everyone, yep. which I think is important. Um, and feedback was thorough regardless. Um, and I think even now, four, almost five years later, those things still stand in recruitment. So there's too many founders and bigger companies that don't provide detailed feedback, don't set people up for success, don't have a big enough input from everyone. It's yeah. like you said, it, it, everyone sees everything slightly differently. So I think that was really good. Um, I think a big reason why everyone's still here. I mean, even though some people might think it's only four years, some of those people have been here. The average tenure of people in IT now is like, I looked at a study the other day, it's something like 18 to 24 months. Sure. I, can, well, I can believe that. Nuts. It's, it's crazy. It's nuts. It? I mean, the only other worst industry is actually recruitment, which is apparently 13 months. <laughs> so, uh, see so that. Yeah, I mean, to be somewhere less than two years is pretty standard in IT now. And there's pretty much nobody been here less than two years unless they joined recently. Yeah. Um, so no, that's, that's amazing. I think it stands true to, to the stuff that you started with. I think some people will be really interested in, we've kind of talked about challenges of scaling, but is fundraising as bad as everyone makes it out to be? Huh. If you'd asked me that six months ago, I'd have said no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but now, I don't know. Uh, so, well, we've only done two rounds of funding, yeah. I should say. We had our seed round, and then a year later, we, um, a year and a bit later, we closed a, a Series A. Yeah. Um, and we've just been really lucky to like meet great investors and not really have to do a heavy fundraising process for either of those two. Um, series B round, which will be the next one for us, is the one that everyone says is the hardest. Oh, is that um, like the... Yeah, I, I think there's a variety of reasons why people think it's hardest. Um, but I think it's because you're a bit in between stages, really. You, you, you've neither absolutely proved it. So it's not like a late stage private equity investment, but it's not like an early stage you can sell from a PowerPoint. It's somewhere in between. And, and that's a and, and that's a hard, you know, a, a hard thing to get away because you've got to meet investors who both got conviction in what you do, but like the numbers that they see at the same time. I suppose um, you'll probably have to like them more than maybe your seed round or an early stage because for some companies, maybe not everyone, I assume that you just kind of want to get that money in, and maybe you make the wrong choice at the start. Well, so we, well, we've always been selecting for do we want to work with these people. Um, so, so I, I would go with that's my number one. If you don't get good vibes in an investor meeting, even if they're interested in you, don't bother because you don't want to work with people you don't want to work with. But I, th I, you know, I think I think fundraising is. I think we found it easy historically. I don't think that's we're, great. I don't think we're about to find it easy in the future because um, we're we're now in a position where we are trying to do something fundamentally different, new, unique. And we're talking about trying to shape an industry the way we want it to be shaped. And there are very few investors who will make investments on those bases yeah, okay. um, at our stage. Um, and, uh, but, but, but we'll see. Certainly, I think one of the benefits we have is we're in a hot sector. We're doing something really interesting. Having our AI system and our unique take on the market um, makes it such that everyone wants to talk to us. So we have the ability to have the conversations. Um, so we'll see when it comes to the next round of funding as to whether we can uh, make it look as easy as the last two. <laughs> That's good to hear, because I hear a lot of like horror stories around fundraising, but maybe people just aren't choosing the right investors, the right people behind their business. So yeah, no, that's, that's well, very helpful. Yeah, and I, I, th I, I think um, people, 
yeah it possibly depends on the founder you know yeah uh, for sure you know i've worked in if you think about that you know i've worked in as an equity research analyst of you know i I understand how people analyze businesses yeah okay um that makes it possible for me to present the business in a way that people will want to receive that business being presented to them if you were a technical founder i think you would find it very very difficult because you'd have to learn that and learn to look at your business in a way that you naturally don't look at it as a tech founder you would look at the product the technology so i think it's possibly each to their own but the thing that i would definitely say is just meet as many people as you can if you like them focus on building those relationships if you don't get a good vibe don't bother treat them like friendships and then um, and then when you need to raise money those people will be there to support you um, that's po- probably the best way to go about it i would say no, that's great um, i'm conscious of time so um if you were to advise anyone else at the kind of early stages of maybe when you guys were doing this in 2014, other than what we've talked about in terms of strong leadership team, walk away from potentially bad investment, is there anything that sticks out in your mind over the last four or five years that just has been, I don't know, incredibly helpful or something you'd maybe do differently? I, I think we've got it. I think our perspective on, we mentioned this before we started uh, recording, that you know, culture and team trumps everything. Um, you will get through. You know, you will get through uh, if you have a, a strong culture and a strong team. And I think if you have clarity of where you want to be, and everyone's bought into that, and you can truly be like an authentic, purpose-driven organisation, then you you should be okay. Uh, but but beyond that, every business is unique. So I think Peak's experiences, I think uh, in general terms, can be related to those things. Um, I think specific things that we do um, are probably quite unique to us um, and the list of things that we would do differently are probably different from endless. Else. I think <laughs> to give you guys another bit of a plug on culture, I think the important thing for other people maybe listening would be that culture isn't like a ping pong table at peak, like there's diversity and inclusions at the heart of it, learning and development, like opportunities for people to, to silo into different roles. I know people that have started doing X and now do Y, a flexibility and a maturity around the workplace. I think mm-hmm. if you can instill all those things as a, as a founder, then you're probably starting quite well. And I feel like, I mean, Lucy was obviously a big driver on some of that, but yeah. you hired her in early and it's been ingrained in everyone that's ever started here. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's got to be authentic. So, you know, write down how you would like, you know, what's your dream work environment? What culture do you want to create? And then try and build towards that. And we, we assess people's cultural behavioral fit in every, in, every stage of every interview. Um, we live and breathe those values every day. Um, and that's what makes culture culture. Um, it isn't having, you know, fruit water and playstations and all these things that we actually do have because people want to yeah. socialize with each other or whatever. Or but that wears off, right? That, yeah, that's, they're just, that's, they are like base level hygiene factors. Um, to use a HR phrase, but what, what is what you know what is what is really important is people being um, empowered to make a meaningful impact every day, and there being a high trust environment. And if you can create that, and then layer on top of that core values that you think you know uh, are important to the way you want the business to shape, um, you'll be in a good place. But it's really really difficult to do that. It's it, you know I I reckon I've probably spent half my week on either. The first thing you mentioned, recruitment or um, culture and team development, you, you just got to do it. I think yeah, I think it has to be like 
built into the business, not just something that you do. I think everyone needs to be bought into that. Uh, so two last points. What are your thoughts on the kind of AI hype train or Daily Mail style articles of it's going to take everyone's jobs and all that kind of, I suppose, some of it's hyperbole, some of it's maybe not. Um, where does an AI business sit on that? Great question. Uh, well, let's focus on the first bit. It's for the hype train. I don't think it is hype. Um, AI has the ability to make a real impact in so many different areas. Um, and that has the ability to help businesses grow quicker. It has the ability to help them um, be more profitable, grow, you know, and in, in turn, um, the businesses themselves grow and they create more jobs. Uh, and uh, you know, and I think that's a real thing. Uh, in other sectors where AI is being used, you know, it offers new features in products and in new products themselves and services that customers and consumers like. Um, think about how well Google's search engine works. I mean, that's all AI-driven. I think when it comes to the latter point, though, on you know the fear and the fear of fear that AI could take jobs and and so on, um, that's natural. I mean, you, you've gone through industrial revolutions that have always resulted in. Um, changes to uh, like you know ch- fundamental structural changes to the way industries work through automation and um, and, and same ad- advances in machinery and computing. I think it's slightly different actually the AI era than than, than those earlier ones though. Um, people are going to naturally be um, concerned about those sort of things. Naturally, people don't like change if they don't understand what the change is going to be. But I think AI actually in the workplace in particular offers. Um, the opportunity for people to do more and if I look at the things that Peak helps our customers with they're very much around um, supporting the people in businesses to do more at a higher level and and that in turn frees, frees those individuals up to make a bigger impact, to be more creative and I think every single one of our customers has ended up hiring more people because of their AI initiatives because the the, the, the algorithms and the computers are doing more and more and they're automating things but they still require humans to um, to tell them what to do to control them to give them the parameters to create the creative marketing messages or to understand how to you know range and merchandise products in shops and so on and so forth and wh- whatever that might be if the more effective your business becomes um, the higher performance it is the wider the margins become the more you grow, and the more you grow, the, and the more the computers can do, the more you need people to do those roles. So I think um, in our case, I feel pretty um, proud that I think that we're in the job creation um, market in doing what we do, which is awesome. Um, but then again, I naturally understand that um, there are possibly some companies and some applications that that, that you could argue aren't. Um, and I think, and I do, and I do think that um, the developments in in, in machine intelligence, need to be um, you know need to be well, not necessarily regulated, but well observed and controlled by by governments, such that any significant advances in those technologies can be you know can be can be controlled for good. But but I think that's a very different um, market and a very different um, sector to to where we play as peak. Yeah, no, I totally agree, and I think what you said is bang on. I mean, I think it might take some jobs, but I think it will create more, and it might take some jobs that people didn't want to do. They just had to. Um, so that's, that's great. We're probably running out of time, so we're going to miss Brexit, because I don't know if I've got the mental capacity. Uh, but to finish off then, what is Peak's plan for 2020 and beyond? Where does where does the next kind of 
five years of uh, of kind of growth and uh, an exciting work come from or, yeah. or look like? Well, I think uh, we see a really big opportunity to create a, a global technology company from from Manchester and Jaipur. You know, we're, we're co-located between the two um, the two centres that we've got. Um, specifically, if we take it for granted, if we if we take it as as sort of almost um, guaranteed that most businesses are going to have to adopt AI at the core of their operations over the coming years. I think they're going to do that through a centralised AI system like the one that Peak has built. Um, and at the moment, we we are um, the market leader in that space and growing very quickly. And so I, we're trying to figure out ways that we can take that early leadership position and um, and, and capitalise on that to, uh, to to eventually win that what what should be a really exciting and big global market. For next year, that means you know continued growth. I would like to hope that we can double our revenues uh, again and I'd like to hope that we can you know that, we, that our teams would be expanding um, at a similar rate beyond that it's really hard to imagine well you know it's pretty mad to think that it's five years since I quit my job uh, <laughs> to do this so and it's gone by in the blink of an eye so in the next five years I don't know I, I really don't know but if we were successful in maybe in three years um, I'd like to think that we would have a really strong global customer base um, we would have kept true to our cultural values and our identity and that we would be leading with the charge in like a, a new mega global market um, so that 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 is um, that's what we're after doing yeah I think I read somewhere that you said that you want peak to be like the someone says CRM they think Salesforce mm. so if someone says we have an AI system they'll just say that we like, run on peak we, we, just, we run on peak yeah. like nobody says what's peak or who are peak it's just like cloud CWS yeah. AI system is peak, CRM is Salesforce. Yeah, that would be the dream. So, why not? Why not? Let's give it a go. That's amazing. Uh, all right, well, thank you very much for your time. Really do appreciate it. Um, and I'm sure we'll sit down again once you've, uh, once you've taken over the world. <laughs> in a good way. Yeah, in a good way. <laughs> After Brexit. Thank you for listening. Hope you'll agree it was a cracking start to the series, uh, even though I was riddled with the cold and sound more annoying than usual. Massive shout out to our sponsors, Cathcart Associates, and without them, none of this would be possible. Please do uh, like, share, comment on the podcast, um, follow me on Twitter as at Liam underscore Cathcart. Um, and if you want to be involved on the podcast, please do get in touch. I would love to hear from you.